Hello and welcome to How's the Water, our very occasional podcast about books. And I'm joined as ever by Sienna. How are you on this fine evening? I'm very well, thank you. And how about you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. Would you like to tell our listeners what book we are doing this episode? Yes, so I'm very happy to say that for this episode, we are returning to the Brontes. I never thought that we would come back to them after the many episodes we did on them, but we have. And specifically, we're coming to Anne Bronte's first novel, Agnes Grey. Uh, when did you first hear of this book, Gary? I don't I don't know, to be honest with you. It's, yeah, I think being aware of the Brontes, you're kind of vaguely aware of the names of the books. So I couldn't say that there a particular time when I first heard of Agnes Grey. I think I became more and more aware of it, obviously, when we were doing the Bronte episodes last year. What about you? Uh, yeah, I think I actually became aware of Agnes Grey through reading The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which was our third ever episode on this podcast. And uh, I hadn't really heard much about Anne Bronte before we really started researching the Brontes. I know that's a weird thing to say. But at least in the United States, anyway, any literature you read on the Brontes, it's always Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. And you don't really get that much of Anne's or much exposure to her, her stuff. So, yeah, doing The Tenant of Wildfell Hall was the first thing that we looked at or the first thing I ever really looked at with hers. And I we both enjoyed it very much. And we had talked about exploring more of her work. And that's what got us um, into reading this. And it was delightful, actually. Yeah, I would say from the Bronte reading that we did earlier, the the Tenant of Wildfell Hall was both of our favourite novels from those, I think. And for me, it was the favourite of our episodes that we recorded. Mm -hmm. And I do remember saying, uh, me saying at the end, oh, I definitely would like to read Agnes Grey at some point. And I felt like that was a kind of commitment when I said that and that at some point we would come back to it. So I know you said earlier on, oh, I never thought we'd come back to the Brontes, but I knew I was going to go back and read Agnes Grey and I really hoped that we would record something on it. And mm -hmm. uh, here we are. Yeah, here we are. And it's going to be a quick little episode, I think. But yeah, we really hope that you guys enjoy it. And if you've read Agnes Grey before then we hope this is a nice little um, revisiting of the plot and the characters. And um, speaking of revisiting, so we've already done a full bio of Anne Bronte before, but Gary, would you like to remind our listeners a little bit about her and her life? Yes, of course. Yeah. So as uh, Sienna just said, we've already done a full bio of Anne Bronte. So we're not going to do that again. I mean, if you want to hear us, go through her life in a bit more detail you can only you can always go back to that episode it's very good uh, I think it's one of my favorite episodes we've ever done yeah mine too yeah instead I thought that rather than repeating ourselves we could just remind our lovely listeners about the parts of her life that are very likely to have had a bearing on Agnes Grey it seems to me that a lot of this book is biographical so this novel, Agnes Grey, was published in 1847 and it was suggested by Anne's sister, Charlotte, who I think we may have talked about a little bit before. What? Uh, that, yeah, who? you remember her? Oh, yeah. her. Yeah, the our favourite sister. 
<laughs> Just kidding. Alleged murderer. That's right. Yeah, we, do, we don't want the, the Howarth Parsonage Museum suing us, do we? No. Um, I don't know how litigious they are. Uh, it was suggested by Charlotte that Agnes Great is largely influenced by Anne's experiences working as a governess. So Anne had, before writing this book, fulfilled various positions as a teacher and a governess. The first was working for the Ingram family at Blake Hall, uh, where she served as a governess to the children of the family and found them to be highly disobedient and spoiled. She was not permitted to punish them and received very little support from the family. She was eventually dismissed from this position as the family believed the children weren't making enough progress. On returning to Haworth, Anne met her father's new curate, William Waitman, and there is some possibility that she was in love with him. He was good looking, which certainly helps, and showed an interest in all the sisters, which probably helps as well. And the character Edward Reston is believed to be based upon him. It's not um, really great. I don't know, you're interested in someone who's not only interested in you, but shows an yeah. interest in all your sisters as well. Just a what? Just saying. <laughs> And like, and like a lot of people, I shouldn't laugh at this. I like a lot of people in the Bronte story. Waitman died young of cholera in 1842. Wow. Yeah, these were the times, obviously. Between 1840 and 1846, Anne worked at Thorpe Green Hall near York. Here she was the governess of four children of the Reverend Edmund Robinson and his wife Lydia. At first she encountered problems like the one she had at Blake Hall. She also greatly missed her home and family. However, Anne was determined to make a success of it, which she ultimately did. And the Robinson girls became lifelong friends. In January 1843, Anne helped her brother Branwell, <laughs> as a harbinger of doom, I think, Branwell, oh. gain a position as a teacher at Thorpe Green. In June... Oh, oh and you I can guess what happened. Yeah. <laughs> you can guess what happened next. Well, not next. It was a few years later. In June 1846, Anne gave up her position, and there is strong speculation that this is due to Branwell having an affair with Lydia Robinson and him being dismissed. Thanks, okay. Branwell, for ruining <laughs> such a wonderful thing. <laughs> Well, he did that, but then she returned to Howarth and started writing. So maybe it was a good thing. And yeah, I mean, as we said before, not to spoil the plot of Agnes Grey too much, which we're already about to do anyway, but a lot of this book is basically taken directly from this bio. Shall we learn a little bit more about that then? Would you like to tell us what happens in part one of Agnes Grey? Mm -hmm. Sure thing. So Agnes Gray is narrated by Agnes Gray. I should mention that there was at least one time where I said to you, who is the narrator of this book? Mm, and you, you did, yeah. It's Agnes Gray. That's her name. Agnes is the daughter of a minister and his wife. Her mother left her wealthy family in order to get married and was subsequently cut off from their wealth. Mr. Gray carries a degree of guilt regarding this, and he tries to improve his family's lot by investing money with a merchant. However... This man is shipwrecked and perishes, leaving the Greys in debt. Very dramatic. The family, therefore, needs to cut costs. And Agnes, wanting to prove herself independent and capable of earning, determines to secure work as a governess. 
With the recommendation and her parents' permission, she gains a position with the wealthy Bloomfield family. However, her time here is very unhappy. Mr. Bloomfield constantly finds fault with Agnes's work. The three children, especially the eldest, Tom, are spoiled by their indulgent mother. Tom is cruel and aggressive to his siblings and finds pleasure in torturing animals. Uh, Agnes is blamed for the faults of all the children, but is not given any authority to discipline them. It is with some relief to her that Agnes is fired as the children's mother does not feel they are learning with enough speed. And that is essentially part one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's not with them all that long, is she? No. (laughs) No. What did you think of this part? So there's a, actually for such a short part, there's a lot that happens in it. Yeah, I, I liked it. I liked the kind of just the, just the simplicity of it, really. You kind of learn quite a lot about Agnes herself. She portrays herself as very composed, but I'm not sure how composed she is dealing with these awful children and the children, especially the eldest son. He's just awful. He's like the yeah, worst. He, kind crush, of he, he, he calls it like nesting. And so he looks for baby birds to like rip the heads off and stuff yeah. in the net. Like she wrote this. <laughs> it's so horrible. And you can only imagine like if she wrote that in her book, it might be because one of the children. At, um, yeah. Who are those people? Those children at, um, at the Ingrams. At the Ingrams. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one of them was like that. And that's where she got the inspo for Tom. <laughs> Yes, yeah, it's certainly possible. Yeah. I think I think the thing you like about Agnes as well is for the time she's very protective of animals, isn't she? She really seems mm. to hate cruelty of any kind. And and that made me like her yeah. all the more, I think. You just get a real sense that she has a, a moral code that she lives by. Mm. And that persists right right from the beginning all the way through. And this is one of the first signs of that. Yeah. And I think something else that's very important and something that's covered in uh, the other Bronte books as well, or in other episodes we've done is that, um, well, the, the Brontes, their father was um, a, no, their father was a minister of the parsonage. They were a very religious family. All three Bronte sisters were very religious. And Agnes Gray is a very religious character, mm-hmm. as many of them are, and, and many characters are in the Bronte's books. And she quotes a lot of scripture um, from the Bible in dealing with the children. And um, a lot of her stance on animal cruelty is based on a lot of quotes from the Bible about being kind to innocent things. It's just very clear that um, religion is a big part of Agnes, the way that she goes through the world and her moral compass and everything like that, which is nice. Mm, Yeah, yeah, certainly. How would you deal with children who were like that? Not very well, I don't think. It's awful. Uh, yeah, I I don't like cruelty either. I mean, that doesn't make me particularly great. I think most people would feel the same way. I suspect I would just end up losing my temper with them. And probably with parents like that, I wouldn't have lasted as long as Agnes, mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, because she's kind of just caught in this horrible position of like they're not behaving but she's not allowed to do anything no and the parents actually almost like that their kids are quite strong like spirited high spirited Mm -hmm. and and everything so when you've got like people who kind of encourage that behavior there's really not that much you can do at all i was waiting for the moment where it will it'll be like oh no she'll turn them around 
she'll, she'll do or say something and they'll, she'll earn their respect. And then it'll all, the book will start getting really good. And then we're like, it's not working. We're going to have to dismiss you. It's like, oh yeah. shit. It's not really that kind of book, is it? Where no. the, the children sort of come around to her and you see that in the second job, really. It's not it's... a Hillary Swank movie <laughs> where she teaches writing to like inner city kids. Yeah. It's not, it's not dangerous minds. No. I know that was Michelle Fife, but not Hillary Swank. It's fine. It's same thing. Yeah, there's no uh, Bob Dylan lyrics in the classroom. <laughs> okay, well, Gary, would you like to continue on by starting with part two now? Yep, here we go. After returning home, Agnes implores her mother to help her find a second position. She advertises herself and finds a role with an even wealthier family, the Murrays. Here, there are four children, two boys, John and Charles, who were sent to school not long after her arrival, and we don't really see them again at all. And this leaves her in charge of Rosalie and Matilda, the two daughters, obviously. Both these girls are self-centred and not always easy to deal with. Matilda is a tomboy, and Rosalie is coquettish and flirtatious. Despite this and similar difficulties with this set of parents, Agnes is in a more advantageous position than before and works hard to succeed. Finding herself with more free time, uh, particularly after the two boys go to school and the girls get a little bit older, she visits and reads the Bible to Nancy Brown, an old woman in the neighbourhood who is nearly blind. At Nancy Brown's house, she learns about the new curate, Mr Edward Weston, and eventually meets him there. The next day, she meets him again on a walk. He picks and gives her wild primroses and she begins to develop very strong feelings for him, but is unsure if they are reciprocated and keeps them to herself. Sort of shades of Jane Eyre there, I think. Mm -hmm. Rosalie observes the developing friendship between Agnes and Weston. She, this is Rosalie, in turn gets engaged to Sir Thomas Ashby, a member of the aristocracy whose house Ashby Park is coveted by Rosalie. She reveals the engagement to Agnes, but swears her to secrecy as she plans to continue flirting with other men in the area before she's married. This includes Mr. Weston, who she openly flirts with after she and Agnes meet him on a walk. Rosalie soon leaves in order to marry Ashby and tour some of Europe's more glamorous cities before settling at Ashby Park. Agnes's sister writes to inform that their father is dying. Uh, Agnes manages to secure leave from the unwilling Mrs Murray, but arrives too late to see her father again. Once his funeral is done, Agnes decides to leave her position with the Murrays and open the school with her mother, much like the Bronte sisters tried to do at one point. Mm. And that's the end of part two. Yeah, that's a nice part as well. Mm. It's all very nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed this part, even more than part one, I think, just to just a nice kind of developing narrative I think yeah well there was a point I think there were a few chapters where okay she's getting along and I was thinking like is anything going to happen because the two boys are gone so there's no you know and yeah the girls are a bit hard work but they're not that bad and she seems to be okay just sort of entertained by um, Rosalie yeah you know watching her with a bit of bemusement from you know detached bemusement I suppose like oh I notice her doing this and I notice her flirting with him and talking yeah. about this and she knows that she's a bit silly and and everything and then you get Mr. Weston he comes in and you go ah 
Okay, now this is where it's going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as soon as he's mentioned, I don't yeah. know if, if it's just something about writing of this time that you think, oh, okay, that's the guy. Yeah, it's you know, going to be him. Really know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't know anything really about the story of this no. book, but there was some, okay, that's who she's going to fall for. This is a love story in, in the end, after all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So... It's, it's pretty nice. Um, did you have a favorite character born of this part? I quite like the two girls. I know yeah. Rosalie's a pain, but she's all right, really. Um, I like Agnes. And yeah, I like Weston as well. He's, he's, I think, very quickly you see that he's a strong character who has his own sort of sense of purpose and isn't too worried about what other people think of him. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's what appeals to Agnes. So I, I liked him. Did you have a favorite character? Well, what you said about Weston, I want to mention as well that he's a curate for a minister who is actually a, I don't know, is it a conquest, would you say, of Rosalie, the the minister who Weston is kind of under? He's like an inferior to. Yeah, she he's one of her... I don't know. What Suitors? do you call somebody who you flirt with? Yeah, he's definitely a suitor, isn't he? He's interested yeah. in her. And he's, he's a horrible Christian and he's a he's a terrible minister. And he he he's very selfish in how he kind of looks at or how he you know tr- uses his position in yeah. the community. And I think he just sees Rosalie anyway as kind of a cash cow, really, don't you think, in a way? Um, so yeah. he's a bit, you know, every single thing like, oh, you shouldn't, uh, I don't know what kind of commandments are there. Don't be, don't, don't be greedy. <laughs> is that one of them? <laughs> yeah. And then he's all, he just wants a life of like money and he wants the hot girl and he wants to flirt and like kind of, he doesn't take his job very seriously. And, and then you have Mr. Weston, who's such a foil to him. He, he goes out into the community and he'll actually read to people and, and do a lot of the things that Agnes does just because he's a good person and he takes his role in the community seriously. Yeah, that's definitely true. I can't remember the minister's name. I should, we haven't got it written down. Something with Harry or yeah. Henry or. Yeah, he's, uh, he's more interested in social climbing, isn't he, than sort of administering to his flock, I think. And you yeah. sort of see that in the church services. Doesn't he just hang around with more of the gentrified people at these services, mm-hmm. you know, and, and kind of talks to them and spends time with them and wants to kind of network, basically, yeah. rather, than, rather than help people. Yeah, you put it much better than I did, I think. But yeah, essentially, that's that's him. And, you know, the thing about Mr. Weston is that he's not particularly a nice looking man. I think Agnes says that he's like, all right, but he's not handsome, really. <laughs> He's pretty average, maybe even below average, but there's just something in his character that is very solid and very honest. And that's something that she finds endearing, I guess. And she, I think very quickly, she finds herself being very taken with him. So on their walks, she doesn't really talk and she just says, oh, I wish he'd go away so I can think about him and not have yeah. to talk to him because it makes me very nervous and that's very cute and i i think that's i don't know something everybody has experienced if, when they find themselves kind of having a crush yeah so, you kind of i think there's a lot of like looking forward to seeing the person 
that that you like but when you actually do see them it's just horrible yeah <laughs> you just want it to, and you just want it to be over mm. and I think there's quite a lot of that with her and she just feels embarrassed and uninteresting mm. and I you know I can certainly identify with those feelings certainly when you meet somebody that you like because you it's almost like you see your own failings like reflected back at this back at mm. yourself don't you even though they might not be doing anything yeah because you're, you're just very self-conscious and then I mean and another thing to mention um just quickly about the character of Agnes is that she is young and inexperienced in the ways of life in the world, I think. So sheltered in her little village. And then she's only 18 or 19 when she gets that job mm. with the first family, the Bloomfields. Yeah. Um, and then this is maybe a few months later. So she's just a young woman who's probably never had feelings for anyone before. So I think that Anne Bronte it captured that that feeling very well yeah i think so first time it does, first love first crush it does remind me quite a lot of jane Eyre, that part um, mm. and i know that's quite an easy comparison to make because it was written by her sister and it's maybe slightly lazy of me to say that but the, when jane Eyre falls for rochester my favorite parts are that she just chooses to love him quietly and there's a little bit of that in agnes isn't there she doesn't pursue him actively western she just kind of likes him and like and likes the idea of him being close but doesn't necessarily see it heading in kind of a romantic direction um i think western's quite a different character to rochester i mean i think charlotte and certainly emily Bronte kind of paint in quite broad strokes i think so the the men are kind of quite wild moody. you know or right. wild or moody or kind of in wuthering heights kind of either that or a little bit wimpy whereas mm. here western just kind of seems like maybe a more realistic character it's rounded you know? yeah nice rounded less complicated possibly I don't know. Although, no, he definitely has his complications, I think, Weston. There is a sense of uh, a lot of thinking going on within him. Mm. But he's not, he's not tortured, is he, in the way that Heathcliff and, and Rochester are? No, very, no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Um, one other character I just want to shout out because I really kind of liked it was Matilda, the tomboy. Yes. So the other yeah. little girl, uh, she's mm. a hoot, that girl, because she she hangs out with her dad's hunting party. And so she cusses. She always goes, damn it. <laughs> she's like, what, 14 <laughs> or something? And I want to go, where are my damn dogs? And every, her mother is like, oh, that mouse. Yeah. Oh, and Agnes is always like, you can't. <laughs> so she's cute. And I think she it's implied that she starts to grow out of that as she gets a bit older and starts to enter society a bit more and become a bit more refined. Yeah, I think the the tomboy aspect is is very much seen as not a good thing, is it? No. In this book, it's like, oh no, don't be a tomboy. That that you you have to be like a lady, and that's definitely again a sign of the times that the book's written in. I don't think you wouldn't get that now. I don't think if someone wanted to be a tomboy, it would it would be fine. But here, it it's very much something that has to be educated out of her. Yeah, they're training her out of being that way, basically. Yeah. But it's also implied that she sort of gets over it herself, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, going to parties with her older sister and kind of dressing up and act, and she just discovers that it's, oh, this is my place. This is what I want. So that yeah. is like a sign of the times. Yeah. So It's a shame, I think, that it has yeah. to be that way. Because she's fun. She's more fun when she's <laughs> a little bit, uh, what's the word? 
rough around the edges. Yeah, <laughs> so that's a very nice way of putting it. I think. Yeah. Right, so yeah. Would you like to tell us a little bit about part three, the final? The final. I'll do part more than that. I will tell you all about it. Go ahead. So in part three, Agnes receives a letter from Rosalie, practically begging her to come visit Ashby Park. There, she sees that Rosalie has changed into a young woman depressed by and isolated within her marriage. And she has a baby now and everything too. She tells Agnes that she resents her husband and mother-in-law. Agnes also learns that Mr. Weston has left the area and she believes that she will never see him again. Before leaving Ashby Park, Agnes advises Rosalie to make peace with her mother-in-law as within her, she may find a companion and confidant. Three days later, Agnes is walking on the beach where she meets Mr. Weston, who now works at a local parsonage and has been looking for her. He visits the Gray's home and meets her mother, who approves of him, of course. He then proposes to Agnes, who gladly accepts in a very, this is all very romantic scene on like a cliffside uh, overlooking the ocean. Um, and the novel ends with them happily married with three children. Yep. And that's it. Yeah, that's it. Very, very happy. Yeah. Did the ending seem contrived to you? It was so happy. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's when the story ends, it's like, and we are married. We have this many children and we are very happy. Thank you. But that's okay. part of the convention, I think. Of this. But you, you always get a sense that it's heading this way. I think if as a reader of this type of book, you would be quite disappointed if Weston had just moved away and she'd never heard from him ever again. Mm-hmm. And she was just living with her mom at the end. It would have been a, a bit of a letdown. You know, <laughs> your mind craves them that pat kind of ending, I think. Mm-hmm. That, that conclusion to the book. So yeah, but I didn't mind that that contrived element. You know. I what love a happy did... ending. I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's not a surprise, I think, to you or anyone else who's followed us along with this podcast. But actually, yeah. I did like it. And um, you kind of know anyway. It's like you've said, you sort of know that's the direction it's going in anyway, when it's like Mr. Weston's gone forever. Is he really? Yeah. Probably not. So, you know, we know these books well enough. We're not talking about House of Leaves here, are we? Or independent people, you know. There's, you have different expectations of, of this kind of book, yeah. and it's it's uh, it's a genre piece in the end, and and I I quite like that. I quite like genre fiction. Yeah, nobody died at the end. Nothing's no. left hanging, really. That's quite no. nice. No, it's all wrapped. It's all wrapped up in, mm-hmm. a, in a nice little bow to a degree. Yeah. Did you want to talk a little bit about the the two marriages? here so there's like the counterpoint between being so one marriage um rosalie and ashby rich and miserable Mm. at least she's miserable he's having a great time ignoring her very a la tenant of wildfell hall or like the the lady of the house is sort of locked in the country in the house and he gets to go off to london and do whatever he wants then you have agnes and mr weston they were very poor but quite happy Yes, I I know what we just said about it all being wrapped up in a, a nice little bow, but it isn't really for Rosalie, is it? Her situation is kind of left hanging to a degree. She's just sort of unhappily married in the country yeah. uh, when Agnes leaves her. And Agnes just gives her the advice, just make your mother-in-law your ally. 
Rosalie kind of hates her mother-in-law and her husband by the end of it. She said, well, I think your mother-in-law probably sees more than you think. So kind of get her on your side and you might find that you, you have a better time of it then. So hopefully she does do that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, there's definitely a sense that they're wealthy in the country, but not that happy. Um, you don't really meet Sir Thomas Ashby very much, do you? He's not a developed character in any sense. Whereas Agnes is is poor. They don't have much money, but she's got the husband she wants and, and the three children as well. And, and uh, you know, seem very content. So there's yeah. definitely, I think that that contrast is very much in the foreground at the end of the book. And yeah, like you say, I think that the marriage of Rosalie and Ashby really foreshadows the relationship that's the centre of the tenant of Welfare Hall as well. Mm. So you maybe see the, the germ of that idea there. I'd be, I'd be very surprised if that wasn't something that was on Anne Bronte's mind as she moved from one novel to the next. Yeah, well, I mean, as we know about Anne Bronte from reading The Tenet of Wapa Hall, that character is based on a real woman who left mm. her husband, her alcoholic husband, at the advice of um, uh, Patrick Bronte, actually, advised this yep. woman to leave her children or leave her, excuse me, to leave her husband with her children, which wasn't done at the time. I think it was illegal to do, mm-hmm. but um, yeah. So that woman was in Anne Bronte's life uh, briefly. And then I wouldn't be surprised if the idea of, of um, an unhappy woman in the country maybe started here, um, yeah. you know, and another thing too, early in the book and Agnes Gray is that Agnes advises Rosalie not to settle down too quickly it's like as soon as Rosalie enters society when she's like 18 or 19, she starts to just flirt and date. And um, I think the goal back then was to sort of make your match as soon as possible mm. while you're young. Yeah, anyway. yeah. But um, I think Agnes was trying to tell her, like, you know, why don't you hold out? Maybe wait another year, a couple years. You don't have to. And she and Rosalie got married to Thomas Ashby. Because yes. um, she just said, oh, he's, he's so rich. And she just thought marriage was going to be just this lovely party where she just got to spend a lot of money and go to lots of glamorous places. And I think the honeymoon was like that. But then it was like, once the honeymoon's over, he expects you to be a wife mm-hmm. and do the, the thing that your wife does, which is go sit in your house and yep. <laughs> just be there. <laughs> That's you now forever. And no more parties for you. No more flirting with people. And then when Agnes goes to see her, she's a bit like, yeah, don't, not going to say I told you so. And she would never say I told you so because Agnes Gray isn't that kind of person. But no, she yeah. just, she just thinks it. She does think it like, oh, she, you really, I told you this would happen. Huh? Yeah. Um, and then that advice she gives her about her mother-in-law is probably, probably will, I don't know. Will that go ignored too? Um, you can say. I, no, I don't think so. You, you, you get the feeling that, Rosalie probably from her experience of her marriage has started to see that Agnes maybe has some wisdom so no I don't I don't think it would have gone unattended to I I suspect Rosalie listened to the advice but we don't Mm -hmm. really know do we all right so before we wrap up shall we do some funny (laughs) inverted commas uh, questions about the book sure so have you ever had a terrible job that you'd write a book about or that might inspire a book? Uh, I don't know if any job that I've had would inspire a book because I don't think I'm capable of writing a book, to be honest with you. 
But I have had a few jobs that I didn't enjoy very much, and you meet some sort of interesting characters doing them. So mm-hmm. I worked in a call centre once, and I really didn't enjoy that. And just sort of dealing with people who had, like, plumbing issues in their house. And <laughs> they, they needed... Uh, they had like insurance and that technically what who I worked for was the insurance company that had to send a plumber to their house. But sometimes they call up and you'd have to tell them that the insurance policy that they had didn't cover the problem <laughs> and that they'd have to find their make their own arrangements. Uh-huh. Um, so that wasn't always easy. These people, you know, were kind of worried about their home and I was telling them, no, you're on your own. I'm afraid I can't do anything to help you. Uh-huh. So you could possibly make some kind of book about that, that sounds like a sad book uh Very sad. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean i think a better writer than me or a writer in fact could make it like quite funny possibly yeah you yeah could a, you could make a comic novel out of that i'm sure oh you can make a comic yeah. book out of that yeah you probably could yeah how about you can you think of a, a, a job you've had yes you could turn into some yes. kind of writing yeah i'm thinking as, as soon as i we were reading the summary about, oh yeah, someone whose work is always criticized and never appreciated and all that. Um, I was a cleaner when I was younger for only like three months or something. It was a gig that I did um, with a woman that I worked with Mm -hmm. um, at a different job. She had a cleaning business on the side and she needed help. And so I said that I would help. And it wasn't actually that bad. Um, I like cleaning and it's not a big deal and I'm not too proud to do that kind of stuff and it was decent money and everything but she started to be very demanding sometimes we'd work like 11 hour days because um we were in her car and if she had a job she just used to be like okay well we're cleaning this place now we're going over here to this house and we've been booked here so we're going here and I remember being like I need a lunch like we wouldn't have lunch breaks she would just like we'd stop somewhere to get like a sandwich and then we'd just be in the car going so I remember being like this isn't you're making me work like 10 hours straight and it's hard work on your hands and knees scrubbing and doing all kinds of stuff and then um, she used to just be really mean to me and really passive aggressive and at first I thought it was just me and my imagination but then some of the other people who we worked with, I think one of the last days that I ever worked there, she was really nasty to me. And um, I was outside talking to a couple of the people where we were waiting for her to, to do something. Um, and they just said, yeah, she's really horrible to you. I don't, we don't know why you let her talk to you that way and let her. And I was just like, you're right. So I just quit. And, uh, okay. Yeah, that was a horrible job. I bet I could write something about that. Uh, Would you say that's the worst boss you've ever had? That's she is the worst boss I've ever had. Yeah, yeah. even worse than the last one. Who's the last one? Your last boss. You? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was way worse. You've never been mean to me. No, no I don't no, think so. No. Have you ever been <laughs> passive aggressively mean to me? I just—it's gone over my head because I'm American. Yeah, I'm probably so bad at being passive aggressive that you you wouldn't have noticed. Yeah, so maybe that. <laughs> but yeah, I would say you don't have anything to worry about. She was really awful. And then I still worked with her at the other job, dude. So oh dear. I had yeah. to like <laughs> see her every day. <laughs> I bet that but that I, wasn't awkward at all. It was super awkward. Yeah. yeah, it was not fun. There you go. Never burn your bridges, people. No. Unless no, those never. bridges talk a lot of shit about you and then I guess do what you want but um it was fine in the end I think we ended up being okay but it was like a year later 
and she finally right, said it'll okay. be nice to me. <laughs> yeah, so it calmed down eventually. Yeah. That's a great story. You should definitely write that down. Yeah, I'm still a bit traumatized, but maybe one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all very traumatic. Give it a bit more time. Don't worry. Okay, I'll ask you, would you rather be rich and miserable or poor and happy? Uh, didn't Donatella Versace say that thing? Didn't she say like, oh, you know, if you're going to be crying, you want to be crying in a Ferrari or something? Or was it crying in a Lamborghini? I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure she said that. And I can't say I agree with her, but I think she has a point about yeah. it. I mean, everyone wants to say, oh, I'd rather be poor and happy, but you can, I don't know. I'd rather be poor and happy, obviously, because you'd rather be happy than miserable. But having money just makes everything so much easier. It's not just makes it better. It just makes it easy. Isn't it? Yeah, it takes away that worry, doesn't it? It's just a whole area of stress in life that you just eliminate just by having enough money. But in this question, you have enough money, but you're miserable. You're definitely miserable. No, then I would not want that. I'd rather be poor and happy if I was like definitely happy. Then yeah. Yeah. What about you? Poor and happy? Ah, rich and miserable, definitely. I can live with being miserable. I don't think I can live with being poor. Okay. I couldn't be a poor person. Gross. Oh, maybe I'm joking. Maybe not. You'll never know. All right. It's a good answer. Though. Yeah. I like the thought of crying and being miserable in a big mansion. <laughs> it yeah. seems fine to me. <laughs> On that not entirely happy note, shall we go into the final quote from the book? Yes. And would you like me to read this? Yeah, please do. So this is from Agnes's walk on the beach towards the end of the book. I I really like this passage. So yeah, please, could you read it for us? Very pretty. There was a feeling of freshness and vigor in the very streets. When I got free of the town, when my foot was on the sand and my face towards the broad, bright bay, no language can describe the effect of the deep, clear azure of the sky and ocean, the bright morning sunshine on the semicircular barrier of craggy cliffs surmounted by green swelling hills. Nothing else was stirring. No living creature was visible beside myself. My footsteps were the first to press the firm unbroken sand. Nothing before had trampled since last night's flowing tide had obliterated the deepest marks of yesterday and left them fair and even, except where the sliding water had left behind it the traces of dimpled pools and the little running streams. Refreshed and delighted, invigorated, I walked along, forgetting all my cares, feeling as if I had wings to my feet and could go at least 40 miles without fatigue and experiencing a sense of exhilaration to which I had been an entire stranger since the days of early youth, the beginning of a new life. Okay, very well read. I think I think you did that justice there. Thank you. It's a lovely, it's a lovely passage and you read it really well. I was feeling it. Could you not oh, yeah. feel it? The, the walking on the beach and the all the, the description that she had, it's really, really good yeah have you ever felt like that after like a morning walk or when you went off to be alone somewhere yeah loads of times um I like being on my own and I really like sort of just walking as well and just like rambling to places so yeah I can think of one time 
if I can tell you a tiny story. Ooh. I I was at university and I wasn't that happy during this particular period at university. And I do remember getting up quite early and it, it was probably around spring, I think, and just going for a little walk around the town where I went, went to university, just around the houses, around the roads. I remember going over like a bridge and just looking out over the town. And there's something about escaping from the, the small life that you're living within like, certainly that time within a room in the university and just going out into the bigger world that mm. it's a bit of a cliche but it, it puts everything into perspective and you always go out come outside of your problems I think and do that and I yeah I felt a lot better I can look back on that that walk now and think that was probably the beginning of things starting to slowly improve for me mm-hmm. I think and yeah I, I've never forgotten that yeah. no that's very nice thank you yeah and thank you for recording this with me as well. No, thank you. I would just like to well, ask or say before we finish. So we've, we've kind of, that's it now for Anne Bronte. She only wrote two books yeah. and, we've, and we've done both of them. Unless and we come back. We've, and do... we've done some of her poetry as well. Too. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, if we, unless we come back and do some poetry in the future. We've also done Wuthering Heights. So would you... <laughs> If we came back and did some more Brontes, that kind of leaves us with Charlotte. We have a few of her books we could do. Is that something you'd be interested in in the future? Or is Charlotte completely... Um, off know, the table. Which, which, off the table for you. You mean Charlotte, the suppressor of the suppressor of work? No, I, no that would be yeah. fine because she wrote yeah. Shirley. Mm-hmm. She wrote The Professor and those are meant to be quite good. Yeah, Villette as well. Villette. Yeah, I wouldn't be opposed to doing them. They're very well known and respected for a reason. And I think the Brontes will always be very special to the podcast. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. As, as that was that was where we started, wasn't it? Yeah. It'll yeah. be I good, good to pepper them in. <laughs> in future, yeah, that's how I feel, I think. So, yeah, I'd certainly be interested in, in coming back and doing doing one of those three books in the in the pretty near future, if we can. Maybe we should ask people which one if we should do Shirley, Villette or the professor first. Yeah, you can send us an email. What's our email address again? That's how's the water podcast at gmail.com. When was the last time we actually checked that? Uh, a while ago. Yeah, we'll be checking it. <laughs> as soon as we go off air, I think I'll, I might have a little look. And yeah. see if uh, anything in the inbox for us. A lot of hate, hate, mail. hate mail. Yeah. to <laughs> say. <laughs> please don't send us hate mail no you can send us hate mail i don't mind i can take it but we'd really appreciate a five-star review on apple podcasts yeah we definitely would yeah so some positive feedback would be much appreciated and it does help people find the podcast as well Mm -hmm. and that and that's that that's a good thing for us and encourages us to keep going so I think that's a good place to say thank you to all of you for listening to this and to any of the other episodes you've listened to as well. We do really, really appreciate it. Yeah, we really do. And we look forward to sharing what we read next with you in future. I'm excited to do that. Yeah, me too. Take care. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me as well. <laughs>